This is Michelle McKenzie, and welcome to the WTF Podcast, where we demystify entrepreneurship and the fog around funding. You founded a company, and you need to create a board. Now what? My next guest can help with that. Mahendra Ramsingani is the author of two books, The Business of Venture Capital and The Resilient Founder, and co-author of Startup Boards with Brad Feld and Matt Bloomberg. He's also the founder of Secure Octane, a cybersecurity seed fund based in San Francisco. In this episode, we'll discuss the business of venture capital, the philosophy of building meaningful companies, the importance of putting the right board in place, and the importance of building resilience as a founder. Mahendra, welcome to the WTF Podcast. Thank you, Michelle. It's a delight to be here. So much of what you talk about is of relevance to my audience, who are mainly entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs who are seeking capital to scale or grow their business. So we're going to start with the beginning, right? What is venture cap? What is the business of venture capital for those who are interested in raising venture funds? What is it that they need to know to guide their capital raising strategy if they're approaching VCs? Thank you, Michelle. I think that's a, a pertinent question for any entrepreneur who wants to not just build a big company, but also ensure that while they're aiming for success, they are able to understand what does success mean for their stakeholders, their employees, and their shareholders and investors. Uh, the business of venture capital is how capital flows from one hand to another. Typically, when I go out to raise venture funds, I have to, just like any entrepreneur, stand up in front of an audience. I have to convince them to part with their hard-earned money. And my conviction is around, I'm a steward of your capital. I'm going to put it in hands of entrepreneurs. Okay, So that's one side of my story is uh, raising money from institutional investors. But when an entrepreneur comes to me, they also need to understand how the business of venture capital works. Uh, we are trying to raise capital. All of us are trying to raise capital. It's a chain of money, and we are stewards of capital, and our goal is to improve society problems and uh, aim for well-being of our communities. And when an entrepreneur comes to me, it's very exciting. Uh, they are solving problems. They, are, uh, they have ambition. They have courage. But if they don't understand that, like them, I have shareholders, if they don't understand that, like them, I'm judged by the returns, then it becomes a one-sided conversation. And so I hope in our conversation today, we can uh, expand on this and help our founders to understand how venture capital works so that they can aim for success for everyone around the table. So what would you say are, let's say, the three to five most important things that they need to know about the business of venture? so that they understand some of these things that you mentioned when they go on their, their fundraising journey to help them in that process to be more successful? So number one, any venture fund is capital that has come from other investors, okay? 
that capital has come on a promise that it will generate a certain return. Okay. So when an entrepreneur approaches a venture capital fund, they need to understand that the fund manager is a steward of somebody else's money, and they are trying to balance two sides. They're trying to invest money into the startup, but they're also trying to generate a return that will make their investors happy, the fund's investors happy. So that's number one, that the capital that uh, we're trying to work with seeks a high return. Uh, the second is second part that entrepreneurs need to keep in mind is that if they raise venture capital, they have to generate returns that are superior or substantially higher than what you might get, say, from the S&P 500 or a fixed deposit in a bank or a muni or pick any one of those quote unquote asset classes. So just like everything else, capital competes and capital seeks the highest return. Venture capital promises a very high return, and that promise partially lies on the shoulders of the founders, entrepreneurs. Thank you for those. I want to switch topics a little bit. A review on Amazon wrote, Mahindra reminds us that for the venture capital industry to become a transformational success truly, the principles of mutual benefit between countries, corporations, customers, employees, and communities is the most effective route to profitable, sustainable growth. What's your response to this? <laughs> that was that was a very generous comment one of my readers put up on Amazon. And when I read it too, Abishal, uh, is, it ge- was... is there any truth to it? <laughs> you said it's generous. I believe, I'm I sure believe there, there, is, yeah. there, has to be, there has to be a truth to it because... Uh, when I look at the role of capital in society, uh, it has to improve society and not just at one level, at, at the 1% of the society. It has to make the entire spectrum of society better. And if we don't approach our roles with what problem am I solving and who is benefiting? You know, those questions can be paramount to every day that we wake up, every every action that we commit to. Uh, we have to keep reminding ourselves, what problem am I solving? Who is benefiting? What value am I unlocking? And in venture capital, a lot of capital comes from very rich people, family offices, uh, large institutions. Right. So you're essentially taking capital from one end of the society. Now, you could very well say, my only job is to just generate returns. Okay. And so then that only one out of the society benefits, right? Our job is to find a way to benefit other parts of society in a meaningful way. Let me give you two or three examples, and our listeners can also relate to it. A few years ago, before the pandemic, one of the most funded companies was a company called Juul, J-U-U-L. Now, you or some of the listeners might know that this was an electronic cigarette, like vaping company, Okay. It was attracting a lot of investment. Why? Because it was growing at a very fast pace. Now, as an investor, as a capitalistic pig, I might say, what a great investment. I'm going to put money in there. But as a parent of a teenager, you know, and a lot of teenagers were using these cigarettes in schools, in, in school restrooms, there were signs saying that this is not allowed here. It had become sort of a pand- uh, epidemic, not a pandemic. It had become an epidemic of a man-made capitalistic creation, right? So when you start to look at values of what values do we subscribe to as human beings, okay? 
what is it that our capital can do in society? And this is where it starts to become an uh, interesting dynamic. Some of us say, hey, forget all of that soft nonsense. I just want to make returns. Okay. There are a lot of others who might say, well, what is the trade-off of this return? You know, when I turn my head around from my IRR page and I look at society, boy, what a mess am I creating and I'm responsible for that. You know, another example that I might quote is there was a company that was making some very interesting technology and one set of customers came saying that we see the application of this technology in warfare and killing people, okay? This company flat out refused to sell that technology to them. Now, that's a values judgment or a path you choose to say, we do not subscribe to that worldview where our technology can be used to hurt teenagers or hurt human beings. And we do not wish our innovations or our skills to be deployed in that way. And I feel that's where capitalism loses its soul, if I can use that term. And that's where I feel like the compassionate part of our journey needs to be front and center in everything we do. I was going to ask you as a follow-up question, how do you define meaningful in terms of the philosophy of building meaningful companies? But I think you sort of already alluded to it, but if you want to add anything, feel free. But if not, we could transition to the next topic, which is to talk about startup boards. So let's say you're a founder, you've got a cool tech company or whatever other type of company you might have founded, and you started off either being a solo founder or with a co-founder or with a co-founding team. And now you're picking up traction, you're picking up steam, you're getting investors, you're starting to move forward. And now there's another stage of the business. You need to put a board together. What are the things that you need to know about structuring a board the right way, getting the right people on the bus? And what are some of the potential ramifications of getting this wrong? That's a great question, Michelle. Most founders start the journey by saying, I need money. Okay. I need money. I'm going to go to Michelle. I'm going to go to a VC. I'm going to go to an angel investor and ask for 100,000, half a million, 5 million, whatever the numbers they need. Very few founders start the journey by saying, I need somebody like Michelle with her background, her experience to help me think through a broad set of challenges that I will encounter when I start this journey. So the first step, you know, Matt, Brad, and I, when we co-authored the second edition of Startup Boards, the first chapter talks about seek people as a starting point. Now, most of the times it happens the other way around. We go to investors and say, I want money. We negotiate the terms. The, the deal is done. And then they read that clause number 19 on that term sheet says, this investor will be on your board and will retain that board seat for till the time that ownership is X percent. So now it's like, a, suddenly you realize, oh, well, this is a marriage. You know, It's not just free money or it's not just money for equity. This person is going to be in a board meeting every month with me. It's definitely a marriage. It's a long-term relationship. And just like if you choose the wrong spouse. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and sometimes these board relationships last longer than a typical marriage does, Michelle. You know, they're at least seven to 10 years. Right. And the average span of a marriage in the U.S. is 
you know, depending on which side you look at, it's probably a little shorter. Uh, we hope it gets longer. But if you're a celebrity, it's real short. <laughs> we we won't discuss Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, recent uh, you know uh, news headlines, <laughs> but I, I completely see how these dynamics become uh, you know both detrimental in one way, sometimes entertaining in the other way. But if a founder has to pick uh, the right board member, uh, the one question that they need to ask is, who's the best? person or best group of individuals to help me go from where I am today to not to the peak of Mount Everest, just the next 18 to 24 months, you know, because that's as far as we can realistically see. I mean, in the pandemic, we've seen, we've experienced that, you know, boy, you know, all our predictions went to hell and all that we thought of has played out very differently. Then on top of that, there's a war. And then on top of that, there's a financial, you know, sort of meltdown of sorts. So, we really cannot see too far out. So as, as an entrepreneur, I should say, over the next 12 to 24 months, Michelle can help me this way. So I'm going to you know, request Michelle to join my board. There may be a Brad Feld, a Matt Blumberg, somebody else who has a certain specific background. They've built a company that is maybe five years, four years ahead of where I am. If my revenues are half a million dollars, their revenues are maybe... $4 million. So they're like a, a older sibling, but there's not a big age gap between them and the board member. So if, if I go and get a board member from a public company with a $50 billion market cap, they will not relate to my startup challenges. They have to relate to my challenges. They have to be able to hold my hand and able to walk me through some of these steps. And those individuals need to have market experience. They need to have a big heart you know, because this is a journey where both sides have to be very patient. There will be mistakes. And most importantly, the board member plays the role of, of a coach, not a player. They need to know the boundary line that they cannot cross. So it's a balancing act for both sides. And how can this uh, relationship or set of relationships be productive is a constant learning. I'm speaking with investor and author Mahindra Ramshingani about the business of venture capital, resilient founders, and advice for founders on how to structure an effective board with the right people. You also, so any before we move on to talk about talking about entrepreneurs and resilience, are there any last points you want to make about startup boards? I wish this notion of diversity, equity, inclusion that is now almost as a forced reaction in society was ingrained into every founder's thinking because, you know, I did my first investments in Detroit 15 years ago, and we saw that this was the most natural way of doing things. And when you move to certain pockets, you know, now I live in San Francisco, and I'm not necessarily proud to say that certain regions have to wake up to diversity. Certain regions are already awake to diversity. And so I feel like entrepreneurs need to take charge of saying, I am the owner. I want to drive this conversation in the right way, as opposed to being reactive to you know, a headline or a, a regulatory mandate or things like that. You, since you brought up diversity, how important is it or not to have a diverse board? 
I think we make a grave mistake when we do not think in broader set of terms. Most boards that I've seen get formed is because, well, I know Michelle because she's a childhood friend. I know Brad because, you know, we've, we've written books for 15 years. So we take the path of least resistance and we try to fill that seat as quickly as possible. You know, that's human nature. I have been a guilty of the, that behavior myself, but it behooves us to uh, take a step back and reflect, how does my board you know, uh, represent my customers? How does it represent society? How does it represent a future set of opportunities around teams, around how we think and operate? And so uh, that is where I feel like the bigger cultural shift needs to occur. We need to slow down and we need to surround ourselves with a broader set of people. I want to walk into a board meeting, Michelle, and I feel like I'm in a United Nations room where it's not just color, but diversity of thought, diversity of experience, diversity of energy that comes into play. You, I was just about to say, the diversity is not just about race or color, ethnicity. It's about diversity of thought as well. Because exactly. you don't want groupthink on your board. You don't want to have a bunch of people who all think the same. You want to make sure that there's diversity of thought to navigate the different challenges that you might encounter that somebody is bringing something unique and different. Right? So I'm glad you, you mentioned that piece because it's, re it's really important. Now, you also wrote The Resilient Founder. One of the reviews of the book on Amazon, and you're going to tell me if this is generous or not, <laughs> states that the author's insights into the struggles founders face help everyone listen and communicate more compassionately. Is there room in venture capital for compassionate communication? The short answer, Michelle, is hell yes. <laughs> Tell me more. I think the compassionate communication, especially when it comes to venture capital and founder dynamic, is uh, we can only get better. You know, the reason I, I say that is because when I spoke with over 100 founders, uh, all of them who were struggling, they were either on medication, in therapy, or have self sort of selected into uh, anxiety, stress, or challenges of the mind, which are very hard to either measure or put your finger on. So we take a step back and say, why or how is this occurring? Now, we may never know the precise reasons, but one of the fundamental reasons is that capital or venture capitalists have this sense of speed. You know, once they invest, they're constantly asking founders, okay, how much progress have you made? How much progress have you made? What's the revenues? What's the growth? What's the gross margin? So I want the founders to imagine that they are running a race and they're running at a certain pace. And suddenly this other body attaches themselves to their back and starts to like constantly, come on, faster, faster, faster. So suddenly like either the founder is going to stumble, fall flat on their face. Or they're going to say, hey, look, you know, I, I can't run this race. You're expecting too much. I, I, I'm out. So it's not just the venture capitalists. It's just it's the nature of the relationship because we as venture capitalists are rewarded for generating returns fast. So I have to go to my limited partners, my fund investors, and say, if I were to invest in a company that is going to take 20 years to exit as opposed to three years to exit, but it will change the world in, in substantially different ways. 
are you willing to support that kind of an investment? I think a lot of investors, limited partners, will run away from it because they themselves are rewarded for speed. So you have this need for speed that is transitioning down to founders, and that's the last link in the chain. The founder is the one who pays the price. You know, If they cannot deliver on speed, they end up with uh, mental health issues. They end up with either quitting or giving up. And after talking to over 100 some founders, they felt like they were struggling only because the VCs either did not understand them, or if they understood them, then they felt like, oh, well, uh, I'll check in in a year, you'll feel better, or find a new CEO in the meantime, I need to go and attend to my other companies. So this is like, the investors also give up on some of these founders very quickly, especially when the mental health issues start to surface. So I think there's room for compassion. We are human beings first. We are both as human beings trying to make our society better. and the entrepreneur skills, the investors' resources are all of those being put to the same cause. And so if we cannot pace ourselves, then we do a grave injustice to ourselves. Thank you for sharing that, Mahindra. Actually, as you were talking, someone I know is trying to build a, a summit, a community around more of these types of conversations around compassion in in that VC space and interactions with founders, I think last year she launched the first edition of the Eclectic Summit. Maybe she's someone I'll connect you with because I think your thought leadership could lend itself well to what she's trying to build over there to have these types of conversations with founders and investors, bringing more investors into those conversations around more compassion and empathy and understanding the mental health impacts of this need for speed and the pressure it puts on entrepreneurs. Now, what are some additional hallmarks of resilience for founders? What advice would you give to founders on building resilience? Other than, you know, reading your book and, and, and putting some insights. <laughs> no, in that. fact, I, I'm a big, big proponent that you should read other authors uh, because I also gain my experience. You're jumping and... ahead to my next question. Or maybe we could just go there now, which is what are some other books besides yours that you would recommend for startup founders to read? No, definitely. I think in terms of books, uh, I drew a lot of uh, inspiration from Jerry Colonna. Uh, you know, his book around Reboot, The Art of Growing Up, uh, is an incredible book. He So by the way, Jerry was a VC himself who quit after having some of his own personal challenges, spent a lot of time uh, reflecting, and then wrote this amazingly compassionate book about how founders need to uh, take responsibility, deal with situations in a different way, change their perspectives. And he also runs these, uh, uh, what I would say, weekend camps where founders gather, they're able to create these safe spaces, have conversations. So I put Jerry right on top of my list. Uh, obviously Brad Feld, but uh, Brad's blogs around uh, mental health and depression have been a lot more helpful. His books are more tactical around term sheets, boards, and such. Uh, you know, uh, Scott Cooper's books around uh, Secrets of Sandal Road and how the investors think have been uh, very helpful. You are the second Scott. guest I've had on the show who mentioned the Secrets of Sandal Road. Um, Brian Awe, who was on season four, episode 10, also, that was on the top of his list, I think. Secrets of yeah. Sandal Road. 
Scott has done a great job. And of course, Scott represents a preeminent firm in recent Horowitz, which has set the bar in the changing the way they engage with founders, how they build their teams. And this was the first firm that, in my opinion, had a breakthrough innovation in venture capital. And let me explain what I mean. Venture capital funds are structured where you get a 2% management fee. So if I have a $100 million fund, every year I get $2 million as a management fee. Now, most of these funds are just one or two partners. You know, so I take home a very fat package, you know, half a million dollars maybe, and I can buy a winery. I can you know, buy my third Tesla or a Lamborghini because that fee has to be put to work. And, uh, and what better way to put to work than buying some fancy cars or wineries? And recent Horowitz said, we're not going to do any of that. Okay. They took that management fee and they hired more and more people to help the founders. So if you go to their website space, there are literally like 50, 100 people that they have, all of them in different categories of how they help founders. And I admire a forum that says, we're going to change the way the game is played. So by the way, when they started, there was a lot of flack, like, oh, good luck trying to succeed. And they have proven everybody wrong. You know, they are the preeminent firm, one of the first firms that founders go to when they start companies. And I feel like Scott, who's a managing general partner, represents that ethos. My personal, we have never done an investment together, by the way, so I have nothing to gain from this love that I share for them. But I admire them for breaking the mold of how venture capitalists always thought about fat fees versus serving the founder. Any other books? Is that your definitive list? Uh, from entrepreneur's perspective, yes. You know, Peter Thiel has written Zero to One, which is, it's, it's a framework of thinking in a very different way. He, he doesn't prescribe to competition and he feels like entrepreneurs should go in places where there is no competition. Hence, you see uh, people like Elon Musk that he's backed who are going into places where there is no competition, you know, Mars, right? There is no Liter there. Literally space, <laughs> the exactly, final frontier, exactly. boldly go exactly. where no one's come before. Exactly, exactly. Now, not all of his philosophies are going to be relevant to all the founders. And uh, sometimes his political views can be seen as extreme. But I'd say, look, we as human beings learn something from each other. And you don't have to take everything. Take the best. You that do a not have offers. to take everything. Take what yeah. is useful to you and exactly. trash the rest. Exactly, exactly. So I feel like he has some uh, remarkable thinking around uh, entrepreneurship. Uh, I nowadays sort of uh, shift the conversations towards more like people like Jerry Colonna because entrepreneurship puts too much into logic and pushes it into our head too much. We need to spend more time in our hearts. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Trying to sort of bring more humanity and compassion into, into business. Mahindra, thank you so much for stopping by the WTF podcast. It was a pleasure having you. And to my listeners, I hope that you got a lot of valuable information and insights from Mahindra. Make sure that you check out his books for even more information. And if you like this episode, let me know. Rate, leave a review, and share the episode with other people. I always say, why keep good content to yourself? New episodes of the WTF podcast drop on Fridays on the Alive Podcast Network. So make sure that you're subscribed over there or on your favorite podcast streaming platform. And make sure that you're following the podcast on Instagram at Where's the Funding underscore podcast and on its show page on LinkedIn at Where's the Funding Podcast. And make sure you follow me, the host, Michelle J. McKenzie, on LinkedIn. <laughs>
see you next Friday for another episode.